Welcome again to the Strange View Podcast. My name is Jason Bardard. Uh, that was Jason Crest and Black Mass, um, a song that I have played in the past, but not for a long time. Uh, the reason is, is because I've got the uh, legendary Phil Smee here today. We're here to celebrate the uh, uh, upcoming release of the uh, Kaleidoscope of Sound 7x7 inch numbered vinyl uh, box set, which collects some of the best uh, psychedelic and freak beat tracks ever done from certainly from the british isles anyway uh welcome phil hey thanks thanks very much we'll be playing uh, the full suite of songs uh from that set um can you just talk about the, the the concept of a kaleidoscope of sounds right well for a long time we, we you know from the very early 80s when i put out the uh, the rubble collections this kind of music has been um it's been released legally and illegally over the years but um, the majors have always been a bit shy about putting it out on their labels. They've always licensed it out to people or almost turned a blind eye sometimes when uh, people blatantly do um, bootlegs. But recently there's been, because there's a bit of an interest, I was asked to start thinking about doing a, a, you know, a big box of different things, which I did start on. And then we thought, well, Anna, this is going to take for ages because, unfortunately, the, the route you have to go down with, I say unfortunately, it's, it's a good way, uh, with the majors, of course, we have to clear everything. Whereas people who do bootlegs don't clear anything, so they can get stuff out overnight. It was proven to be a bit of a nightmare because, of course, this stuff comes from such a long time ago, you know, 50 years ago, that uh, you know the paper paperwork is gone, the uh, the contracts are missing. And legal don't really want to get involved if there's an outside chance of someone coming out of the woodwork. So consequently, I, I, I had my initial, um, I think it was about a 10 CD box thing, kind of whittled down to uh, to, to uh, half that. And then we start thinking, well, hang on, this is going to take forever. Let's go a different tack. Let's, let's go back to vinyl. Let's do something a bit more interesting. So this new idea was born of putting boxes of seven-inch singles out loosely based on the, uh, on a few that I'd been doing uh, recently for Tamara Motown uh, EPs and things, you know, and uh, that's, so we started talking about it and that's, that got things going. This wasn't that long ago. We didn't start until about three months ago. So uh, it all came together quite quickly and um, we, we talked about it. I mean, one of the, one of the things we, we discussed originally was should we do original singles, original A's and B sides. Now, Interesting enough, the older collectors all said, "Yes, you really should do the A's and B sides." So if it's uh, if it's a, a, a song like um, you know a track that's got a fantastic B side but an appalling poppy A side, we still put it out. But the younger people, the people who are really getting into it now, said, "No, we rather have fourteen absolute cracking tracks." You know, so uh, we then modified it slightly so that. You get two tracks, two two good sides, whether it was the original A or original B, but on the same label. So at least you get the labels exactly the right, you know, and you get two sides of um, you get fourteen, which is you know seven singles gives you fourteen tracks, which is traditionally an album. So basically, it's an album, you know. 
Uh, and so that's how it came about. It was just down to me to come up with some good ones to start with. Yeah, and uh, J- the, the first pair of tracks, including our, our opener, Jason Crestor, on the uh, Philips label. That's right, yeah. Now, Philips, the, the Philips label, Universal, who own all this stuff, all, all the labels, don't actually, they can't actually use the Philips label anymore. That's a, a shame, but um, it's, it's a fact. They can't use it. Um, it's something to do with the Philips brand is to do with uh, electrical goods, I believe. And uh, so that it's the one label we can't actually uh, replicate anymore. So the Mercury instead. Well, because the master, the master uh, label is that, that those records are actually owned by Mercury now, and Mercury is probably the label with the least uh, fantastic sixty stuff on. We thought we'd, we'd use um, we'd, we'd put it on Mercury, which is a slightly strange for people who are used to seeing it on the Philips label, but um, it was it was a necessity, unfortunately. So that's it. So it's on Mercury now. Just just tell us a bit about Jason Crest. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the, um, I think it might be the trio of uh, tracks that, that you uh, you compiled on Rubble. That's right. Interestingly enough, you see, when we started, when I started doing the Rubble series, it was really based on my record collection. And uh, I started putting it all together around about 1983, just going through my records. And, and of course, in those days, there wasn't, a good source of discographies. You know, there were very few printed discographies around. Um, some people have just as, uh, have compiled lists of, um, record labels, you know, so you could get a Decca book with all sorts of Decca singles from the fifties and everything. But no one, a, a record collector only listed records worth more than, I think it was more, th- more than five pounds. I think it was something like that, which meant that all their discographies were incomplete. See if it was worth less, they didn't bother to, to list it, you know. And uh, so, our knowledge was really based on what we'd found up to that point. So, no one really knew how many records Jason Crest had made, you know. Uh, and I only had three in my collection, I, uh, or yeah, three, I think. So, they're the three that I used, and that, that went for a lot of the records. I mean, no one knew how many records Wimple Winch had made, you know. Um, it was difficult to find these things out in those days, so. That's that's how I started, and Jason Crest obviously had a oh they were a fantastic band, but they were like a lot of bands told told to record certain things because everybody wanted to hit, or even even uh, even way out bands really wanted to hit. That was the whole point of putting music out, which which makes it all the more uh, crazy that. Um, you would get certain tracks released as singles, you know, like um, The Craig, I Must Be Mad, or uh, Save My Soul, or in this case, Black Mass, um, which was the B-side. And we know by talking to a lot of people who were in the bands of those days, the um, the B-sides were often just left to the band. You know, the uh, the recording session went on for about, I don't know, three or four hours normally, just to get the A-side done. And then the B-side would be put together by the band and normally and the engineer later. So they, which is why you get a lot of experimental B-sides. You know, the uh, first the, the record company knew about it was when it had been pressed up. And in this case, the big wigs at Philips were really upset about it. They didn't want to put it out. They thought it was uh, a bit of a sort of a, a subversive black magic thing. And um, 
but they 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 they, they didn't mind in the end. Well, they did mind in the end, but they came out anyway. Didn't make any difference because he only sold about ten copies. So, um, hence the, uh, the hefty price tag. You know? Marvelous. So we we move to the uh, second second track of this uh, seven inch pairing, and we've got Caleb Baby off phrasing his bad, and that's uh, Caleb Quay, obviously. Strong connections with Elton John there. Yeah. Again, what a weird little single. It was one of those singles that I actually didn't have a copy of that at the time, but a friend of mine did have a copy. It's the only one we knew about. Um, no one else had ever heard of it. It's it doesn't it doesn't even sound as if it's been recorded that well. I mean, it's a it's obviously got phasing um, all over it, but the recording is a bit thin. You know, there's not much bottom end to it. Um, it's a, it's such a weird thing, and and so scarce uh very few copies in circulation but surprise and, and, and legend has it, it was only ever played once and that was on i think radio scotland um played the wrong side uh it got reviewed in um in sounds i think it was by penny valentine who just reviewed it by saying he should listen to his own voice before he criticized other people <laughs> she, she, she thought it was kind of literally baby or phrasing is bad but what a fantastic double-sided uh, single that is! I mean, we'll have to use the other side later on on, a, on another uh, another one of these boxes. Which, fingers crossed, there are going to be quite a few of these. Oh, marvelous! Mm. I mean, the great thing about this set is is that tracks like "Baby Off," "Phrasing Is Bad," is to try and get that on on eBay or from a collector is going to cost an absolute small fortune. Yeah, I mean, you. I don't know when the last copy was sold. So you can look these things up, as you know, on on um, what's it called, Popsite. Uh, hmm. You know, the, the lists everything that's been sold. It's often you, you, a really rare record. You will see it come up occasionally, but it's normally the same record. And then it's been bought by a dealer and then kept for a year or so, and then put back on, you know, to make some money. Hmm. Um, we found that a lot. There's a lot of the uh, really, really rare records. You think they're coming up every now and again. It's the same record. And it's just being used as a as a, as a uh, investment for a few years, you know. That's why they they do fetch a lot of money. And uh, you know, things like the Billy Nichols album, I think that's the same copy's been on and off now three or four times, five times, and it goes up a kind of thousand each time, you know. So um, people think, well, I'll buy it, I'll I'll have it for a year, and then I'll sell it. But I've I've not seen the, I've not seen one of these for sale ever. I've never seen one for sale. So uh, I would love a copy.
Fantastic. Now we get to single two, Phil, and uh, we, we, we get to the Decca label and the fairy tale Guess I Was Dreaming. Great song, this. Um, from the sort of northwest area. They're from, yeah, from uh, Warrington, which is, you know, midway, I think, between Manchester and, and, uh, and Liverpool. It, it's on the Mersey. And uh, I did track down um, uh, Malcolm, uh, the vocalist and the, and the songwriter in the band, and we did have a chat about this uh, not long ago. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was quite surprised. You know, a lot of people are because to, to them this was a brief, brief moment in their lives, you know, and they made, they went into the studio, recorded some songs because they were, they went to a, an audition, you know, and um, nothing happened and that's history as far as they're concerned. But of all the records, uh, the, the two fairy tale singles, I think I would never part with my copies. I think they're just absolutely marvellous singles, particularly Guess I Was Dreaming, mm. which it's so well put together. The beginning, the recording of it is fantastic. Beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, you can't really tell almost what's going on. The, you know, the chugging bass and everything comes together really well. It's well, it's so well put together. Um, they must have been so disappointed that it didn't get played, it didn't sell. You know, um, they must have known how good they were, really. And it is a fantastic, fantastic single. Love it. Great. We'll, we'll give that one a spin. Yeah.
Apparently goes to a band who've got quite a heritage, and I think they did release uh, a number of, uh, of 45s in, in the 60s, and that's uh, the legendary uh, Poets. Yeah, the, now the Poets, as you, we all know, you know, they went through lots of uh, lineups from the very poppy beginning. Even even their pop records were, were a bit too classy for the charts. I suppose the very um, from the very beginning, they were, they were not really going to be... Uh, huge because they're just too good in a way you could be too good i always think in 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 some situations you know they're just too too good and um you know andrew luke oldham connections of course um what's interesting is decca particularly as a label seemed to be very strict about making albums they you had to at least get one hit before you could um make an album whereas some of the other labels were a little bit were less strict about it, you know, but various bands that were on Decca, for instance, the English Birds and uh, and the Poets, had a good string of singles, but never got to do an album. The Poets, you know, when you think of other other bands that, that got albums um, together, you know, uh, they must have been on the brink of being asked to make an album, but obviously they never did. In Your Tower wasn't exactly the last kind of uh, thing they ever recorded uh, they did some stuff after that very small little label to the strike cola thing and uh, the people know about but this last single in your tower the it was just over the top absolutely over the top and um again it makes you wonder what they were thinking when they recorded it w- were they really thinking that this would get daytime play I know with the, with Pirate Radio that up, up to that point they were playing some quite way out things. You know, Radio London would play Soft Machine and everything. But by the time this came out, of course, most of the pirates were uh, defunct. So uh, it, it's down to Radio One, and you can't really see even an enlightened program. Maybe John Peel might play it, but that's all. You know, so it's very strange that they were still putting. You know, the record companies had the faith to, to put this stuff out. Which amazes me, but in your town, it's just what what a fantastic single, and again one which is so difficult to find, um, very difficult to find.
Now we have um, we we move to uh, DRAM. Mm. What a legendary single this one, Tintin Abbey B side. Yes. Now um, we know that there are other recordings. We know that the band, um, well, a couple of the guys in the band have managed to get some demos together, which they I think they released on an, an EP. But um, we do know that they do exist. There are definitely tracks in the archive. DRAM, of course, was set up. Uh, well, not initially set up, but it, it became the label where they were going to put more experimental things on. And it came at a time when all all record companies seemed to want another outlet for their kind of underground way out uh, new stuff. I remember reading about uh, the Harvest label when the guys at the top, who were, when you think about it, probably in their late 60s, early 70s, some of the bosses at EMI in the 60s, and which, which, which put them into the Victorian bracket, you know, commented on, on some of the bands on Harvest saying, what, why, why are we signing these the bunch of Vikings? You know, because they had no idea what was going on. I think they were referring to Edgar Broughton, but um, all, all the labels ended up, thought it was a great idea. Let's have a, a label where we could put this on. And some of them, like uh, DRAM, and um, just just sort of said, well, we've already got one label. Let's, let's just use that. And they uh, commandeered that for the new stuff. So consequently, a, a large number of records on DRAM are, are very worth checking out. There's a few odd things in between, of course. But um, Tintin Abbey, well, it is a double-sided absolute gem. Yeah, Vacuum Cleaner and B-Side. We, we use B-Side We've got to use. We've got to make a choice. We'll we'll use the other side another time. But isn't it just wonderful? It's uh, and 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 again when you, the band these bands hardly they really didn't play live much, so it was all concocted in the studio. Sort of great vision. It's almost like they're just going to have this one stab at it, and and they managed to pull something off, which was uh, well genuinely uh, a work of art. Lovely piece of music. Yeah, I mean both sides of that single are just equally magnificent. Mm. I used to do I used to do a, a disco in London in a club called Alice in Wonderland and um, in the eighties and I remember playing it once and someone leaned over to look and couldn't believe that it was a real copy of the single you know so and the fact that I was I'd, I'd sort of was actually playing on this rough old deck <laughs> seemed to be a bit of a bit of a sacrilege but um, yeah it, it is a it is well it's a mighty single. On the shortlist we had for this uh, for this first box, I did have a few other other tracks which we're still trying to clear. Surprisingly, ones which I thought they would own. And um, uh, for instance, there is a track by the Factory I want to use, and we're we're having trouble clearing that. So um, is that Path Through the Forest? Yes, it was, and um, mainly because you know paperwork has disappeared. But I was glad. I was, I was definitely glad that we were able to uh, instantly clear this one. Because I would have been really upset if I couldn't. But. Yeah, so um, hopefully, so you, you're basically saying that there might there might hopefully be other sets, compar- equal sets of similar similar material. Yeah, the, the, the hurdle you've got to get over with um, selling this kind of stuff is that the overheads uh, in a in a major economy are so high. You know, everything has got to go like clockwork. It's really got to sell. We can't because. We're having to pay. Everything's done legally. You know, your break-even is, is obviously much higher than um, even even a, a, a company like um, Bam Caruso. When I was putting things out, although we were paying 
the licensing fee, you know, that's it, it didn't have to be. Uh, I think the break even, even even with us though, in those days was about a thousand fifteen hundred albums. You know, so nowadays it's going to be even more. So they tackle these things with a certain sort of reluctance because if it goes wrong, then you, you know you've kind of spoilt it forever. No one will ever do it again. <laughs> but this time we've got we've got we've built up such a head of steam that already. I think it's going to open, you know, I think this is going to do quite well anyways, but I think it's going to open the door to a lot of other things. So obviously, you know, we are, we are working on the, on some, on some other ones, goodies, and maybe theme them a little bit more, maybe have some unreleased stuff. And I can tell you about some of the unreleased stuff in a minute when we get to a certain band. Oh, no. The 
now I've got a band that is actually fe- uh, featured on on my website and mm. um, a, a, a small piece by a, a friend of mine, Nick Warburton. Some comments came up on on kind of what happened to uh, the the members after yeah. you know, this this track was released. Secret. Apparently, the lead singer uh, Tony Reese eventually turned up on a, uh, a Fulham uh, football club record by a fictitious band called the Cottagers Viva El Fulham, which apparently uh, kept him uh, remunerated for a number of years. <laughs> <laughs> Before we could kind of go go deep into Virgin Sleep, mm. it's important worth noting to, uh, to to listeners that you have quite a um, a history in terms of uh, graphic design, uh, you know, in terms of books and, and records and, and quite a, a notable history in that. And I assume you've kind of deployed that in this box set too? Well, yes. Obviously, um, it, it, this really was a, a case of, um, you know, write the theme tune, uh, you know, sing the theme tune, design it, do everything, write the whole thing. I don't normally do do everything, but in this case... I just I thought it'd be nice to do everything, so I did. I compiled it and wrote it, and of course I wanted to design it. Um, I've tried to do something a little bit more, a little bit not restrained, but in, uh, has a sort of an interesting sort of take. Uh, I don't if you have you seen a copy. I mean, presumably you must have seen the copy by now. F, yeah, it's in my hands as we speak. Oh right, <laughs> and um, yeah, I just wanted it to be a little bit. What I didn't want to do was do something too obvious, you know. I think that that's a, a theme that runs through all my designs. I, I I try not to do the obvious, you know. That's the sort of a, a, a kind of a cliched uh, sort of a maybe when when you think of these sort of things now, um, you can think of the hapsash posters or you can think of uh, the, the American posters, that kind of thing. I, I just want to do something slightly different, a little bit more, slightly more mysterious, something more interesting. So uh, you know, I set myself a a task to, to come up with something and yes I mean that's my day job designing is my day job uh, always many 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 projects going through um, tons of things that I'm either working on about to work on uh, and I've been doing it such a long time now that it's uh, I, I feel so privileged because it's my it's my life I love music. I'm surrounded by music up here in the studio and my collection, you know, and uh, to actually be doing it, it, it's a bit like selling ice cream and you just love ice cream. It's just, that's what, that's what I do. Uh, it is fun. And um, I, I think I've got it right. I mean, I, 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 I've always, when you're designing this kind of thing as well, you've got to, you don't want to paint yourself into a corner. You've got to think, what else can I do? If I, if I do something on this one, we may, you know, fingers crossed, go for 10 volumes so I've got to come up with something where I can, I can keep the look or keep some kind of uh, kind of theme going for at least ten issues, which is what I did with uh, the Rubble collections. I um, I set a, a look for it that I wanted to keep to, you know. Fingers crossed that there will be more because uh, I've got some great ideas for for, for future um, volumes. Mm, I can imagine. So. Let, let's just let's just dig into Virgin Sleep because it's not. That, I mean, yeah. we've got some basic information uh, for the band, yeah. but this doesn't seem to be loads out there. I'm not sure there's been many interviews or anything on them. No, I really do think they just disappeared without trace. Um, we've not even, you know, we, we've, we've got the basic information, but and, unless you can actually find a member, and I don't think, I mean, maybe we could. I I didn't have time really to go 
you know, to be a d- detective. But um, I would like to know. I, I'd love to know. Did they record anything else? Or um, well, we know there's another single, but um, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know much about it. I mean, that's one of the things. I think it's they're the ones I, I wrote the least on. Uh, still, you know, someone has to be mysterious. Yeah, I, I think. Um... My, my website, The Strange Brew, has got about as much information that's known from them and uh, about them. And there's a few comments and uh, a con- contact email if uh, if anyone knows any more. So if you put the the Virgin Sleep into into Google, you'll be able to find that piece on uh, thestrangebrew.co.uk. mentioned this band before and what a band really with quite a pedigree uh the Wimple Winch and Save My Soul they, they were um Liverpoolians or certainly from that area weren't they they were from Liverpool yeah absolutely and uh when I when I started the uh the whole rubble thing this, this was one of the two singles I had were um were Rumble with the wrong b-side and Save My Soul so I, I just had to put them on and it was because I was putting them on that I wanted to come up with, I was, I was writing the bit on the back of the album and I remember thinking, this is not psychedelic and it's not beat. I need to come up with a new word for this. So I, I just scribbled all sorts of things down. I'm very fond of, uh, of, of making up words that are two words joined together. You know, for instance, you know, Bam Caruso was the whole point of that was I just wanted a, a kind of pop art sounding, word like 
uh, pop, bang, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then uh, an operatic name, you know, like uh, I remember we, I was toying with, um, you, know, uh, you know, different operatic terms like opus and things, you know, uh, because I always like the idea of Deutsch gramophone, you know. So I thought, well, and I just put these two together. So we've got an op art, pop art word, bam, and then Caruso, obviously, Enrico Caruso. So it, it made a new word. So when I was thinking of the, of the winch, I was thinking, I was just, I was doing the same kind of thing. And I thought, well, f- they're kind of freaky. It's a freaky thing. It's not beat anymore. It's more, it's gone freaky, but it's not psych. What is it? It's something in between. So, and I just ended up putting two words together. So freak beat. So I wrote that down on the back of the album. And I'm, the only reason I thought of doing it was literally to give Wimple Winch some kind of description that, that I thought people might latch onto. And, uh, and, and of course they did. And people now use the word, but, um, the band, obviously originally a beat group, uh, I got to know them because I went through when I when I licensed this stuff originally. My, you know, long story cut short. I went up to Phonogram, a Polygram as it was, and said, "Look, I want to put these albums out." And they said, "Well, you better talk to our catalog department." And the catalog department was two people in a room uh, because we were slightly pre uh, CDs. So catalog really either meant putting cheap compilations out in supermarkets or licensing stuff to KTEL and Reader's Digest. So there was it only needed two people to run it. And I said, look, I'd like to put these records out. And the first thing they said was, well, do we own them? And I said, well, I think you must do it. What else is going to own them? And they said, well, to double check, go through that filing cabinet. They said, pointing at the, at the wall and, and it's all in alphabetical order. See if you can find the band in there. So I did, and I found all the bands, most of the bands that I wanted to release. And in these final accounts were letters and contracts and all that kind of stuff. So I, I pulled out all this stuff and uh, photocopied everything. And there were some letters in the Wimplewinch file from Larry, who at the time was in a, I think he was in a home at the time, I think he had some psychiatric problems and he'd written some letters to them. I wrote to the home. They forwarded it to Larry. Larry got in touch and came to see me and stayed me. We, we stayed at our house for, for a time. And we got to know all the rest of the band and uh, the whole Wimper Wimps saga opened up. So I became a bit of a, uh, you know, I was the David Attenborough in the pop world managing to find this uh, long lost uh, Wimple Winch Tribe, and um, I, I still think they're one of the greatest uh, lost legends of, of, of the music world. Incredible, incredible band, so talented. D uh, to this day is so funny. He loves talking, and we uh, we chat for ages about stuff. He's got a crystal clear memory of everything that's ever happened to him, in, from from the Cavern and the Beatles right the way through, and. Um, and, of course, the good news is, and I, I, not many people know this because I haven't told hardly anybody, but we have located unissued stuff in the vaults, including the uh, legendary Invisible Man, which uh, almost certainly was going to be the fourth single alongside Atmosphere. So, uh, And we've also uh, found another track uh, buried in the, uh, in the vaults, which D at first couldn't even remember, but uh, he spoke to um, to John, the guitarist, and uh, John hummed it. He said, yeah, it goes like this. 
and uh, he can't even remember. He can't remember singing or anything. So um, we don't know what we're going to do with them yet, but certainly uh, they could make a single in their own right, you know, and that would be uh, possibly the next box could have an unissued Wimpwinch single, two sides. So we'll see. Well, we'll see what they sound like when I, I haven't heard them yet, but we, we want to get the tapes up and maybe um, go to Abbey Road. We'll, we'll have a play and see what we think. Jukebox Jury. You've uh, released uh, quite comprehensive sets of, um, you know, the pre-Wimple Winch band, Just Four Men. Just Four Men, yeah. tracked Wimple Winch up until kind of the, the sort of more sort of lighter psychedelic stuff like uh, Bluebell Wood, etc. Yes, which, which to be fair, were, was D and um, and John, I think, only on that with some guys who were part of the Strawbridge Studios setup, which was guys from uh, Herman's Hermits and things. And meanwhile, Larry had gone off to his own band, uh, Pacific Drift. Yeah, so they were dabbling, and they were they weren't they were really just kind of demo-y type things in that kind of wistful genre, you know. But luckily, someone had saved them. I think it was D actually had saved them. So uh, we were able to, to put those out. But, yeah, I think we've, we've, the, the, the Just Four Men, if no one uh, wants, you know, wants to get into that, there, I, I did do a CD. I can't remember if it's on catalogue or it might be, but it's well worth checking out because the, the, as a beat group, if you like beat music, they were wonderful. And um, they, they nearly, I mean, they, they, a lovely story because they were actually offered a lifeline by their management who had just received an acetate and um from Burt Bacharach and it was trains and boats and planes this was 1964 and he said look guys you I'll give you first refusal do you want to do this uh, this single and they all said no 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 we want to do we want to do our own stuff don't that we don't want anything so he said okay and he gave it to one of his other clients which was Billy J Kramer you know massive hit with it but such was the feeling those days. You you really didn't want to do music by other people. You know, you just wanted. No, we write our own stuff. You know, we don't need Burt Bacharach's help. Thanks very much. Uh, so <laughs> D rec- does recognise that as is probably one big shot of fame, which they turned down.
and that's the interesting thing and, and you know why I got into this music was that there's this whole um this whole layer of bands that didn't get sort of major chart success but you know just didn't get that break but the catalog you know released and unreleased from that period is is so rich that you can keep digging in it's just it's just endless it, it is and you'd think there would be a, a, a finite but when you actually look at the number of records that were released you know um i think um way back in the 80s when I, I, was, I was doing a magazine called strange things uh my friend brian hogg and i were sitting down and we we try to work out how many records would have been how many singles would have been released in one week in say 1967 1966 and we started adding it all together you know all the labels all the new releases from all the different labels both in this country and then in obviously in america uh add in australia new zealand france um, the Netherlands, fantastic output in Netherlands. You start adding it all together, uh, and then you then you sort of factor in soul labels, Jamaican records, you uh, South America. You end up with in the region of minimum of a thousand singles easily a week were being released. You know, now when you consider that um, most top forties, even the uh, enlightened ones like uh, Radio London on the pirate show they only ever introduced i think about five or six new releases every week you know climbers would become new chart entries so out of those six or seven new records a week at least five of those are going to be sandy shore and um tom jones you know so maybe that maybe leave two for off the wall new bands and maybe if you were studio six or you were uh soft machine you might get one of those slots but considering there is over a thousand other records out there it's incredible it's, it literally is like digging for gold nowadays and because you never know what you're going to turn up on a b-side or and it's been a long time but it's they still do turn up and of course private pressings were being put out you know people were doing their own things stuff would come out on oak or their own private pressings so uh yeah, there's still going to be more. There is yet more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're still on the Fontana label, and we we go to Kaleidoscope, and I have uh, we have featured uh, Peter Daltrey on the podcast and interview here before, and uh, again a, a, a band that I'm, I don't think had chart success, but the quality of material uh, within Kaleidoscope and, and Fairfield Parlour is is fantastic, and and this single flight from Ashia is just, uh, you know, is, is one of those tracks that is just now, you know, in retrospect, an absolutely pivotal track of the era. I agree. I absolutely agree. It, it obviously sold a lot more than um, and a lot of these other records that, that we've featured. But it's worth putting on because even though it's not as rare, it's certainly, uh, it's just one of those fantastic records that had it, had it been, um, if you suddenly discovered this out of the blue, you know, you would just wonder what, how, how everyone's missed it. You know, it, I mean, the, the picture sleeve, um, you know, it came out in a picture sleeve. And I think there were 15,000 made of that, which in those days was a limited edition. Oh, gosh. For, for a single, you know. Um, I mean, even with 15,000, there's very few exist. I mean, uh, it's one of those picture sleeves, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to get it in a picture sleeve. Um, in fact, I've got the shop poster as well, which is um, 
they, they, they obviously had a big push with this record. I've got a shop poster for the first single as well. And um, super talented guys. Um, they had what you need <laughs> to be successful, and that is songwriting skills. And um, Eddie Puma and, and Peter Daltrey were, they, they had a knack of coming up with wonderful tunes and Peter's lyrics which were very unusual, very poetic, really worked well. Uh, and I think all their singles, all, all the singles, any one of them could have been a hit, really. They were as good as anything, say, um, Manfred Mann were doing or lots of other bands that were getting hits with you know, slightly lightweight things at the time. Kaleidoscope, they should have cleaned up. They were obviously had good friends there. They made two albums, which was... Uh, pretty good going for a single a band with just a handful of singles um and then of course then they became fearful parlor they did the unissued um album which has been put out um oh yeah that's superb that is wonderful just super talented band uh i really wanted to get that track on because it, it it's a bit of class it really is a bit of class and it's not that rare i suppose you can pick one up maybe for 45 quid i suppose maybe but um nevertheless absolutely wonderful album and kaleidoscope gave me the word for the title i thought we'll do that to use that in the title
Now we get to uh, Le Fleur de Lise and uh, Mood in Your Eye. I mean, a great band here. Again, quite a number of singles from that period. And I've um, spoken to Keith Guster in the past. And there is um, quite an extensive interview on the strangebrew.co.uk band that had, a, a, you know, an ever-changing cast of uh, members. Absolutely. Um, often seen as, um, really, as a, as a kind of a session group who were used, utilised um, a lot uh, for other people's recordings, but also put their own things out, But which they did. They also put things out under different names, which people do know about now. But um, because the lineup changed, so of course their sound did change a bit, they were... Everything they did, they, they, they excelled at. I mean, their, their mod, their mod records were fantastic. Their earlier beat stuff I loved as well. But, um, there's a, there's a few, few tracks, a few singles on Polydor, which are just go beyond, um, good. They, they become, you know, legendary. Mud in Your Eye, and of course, The Gone with the Luminous Nose. Um, Mud in Your Eye has that fantastic beginning. It builds. Searing guitar solo. I mean, the the whole thing is just uh, a work of art. Um, again, it's one of those records. I had not got a copy of that record, which is um, rather annoying. I'd love one. I've got most things, but that's one of the few things I haven't got. Uh, I'd love an original of that. So, um, yeah, that had to go on. Absolutely had to go on. And in terms of picking material for this set, we you know because. Bands like Floodilies had great tracks like Hold On, etc. Yeah, was the reason for mudding your eyes just because it's got a bit more of that sort of harder psych sound? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I, 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 putting it together, it was a bit like when you're, you know, when you've got a choice between two, you have to make a choice there and then, you know. So I, I thought, mm, which way shall I go? And um, I played it. I played various ones a few times. I thought, no, this, this, I'll start with this one. I may I may do a more floaty sort of uh, slightly weirder set, for instance, on, on another box where I might put, you know, the Gong with Luminous Nose on, or um, you know, or maybe a tougher modder thing, moddy thing, where I might want to use some of the other things. So I I went for this one because um, for no other reason than that that's the mood I was in on that that particular day. Yeah, and and of course the other thing to mention is that we this was all cut at Abbey Road. All these all these sides were cut at Abbey Road, and the sound you know if you if you get you get the box you get the download of course you get the digital download but stick these on your on your um, on your record player and, uh, and and turn them up. I I've got quite a nice system up here, and I was speechless. Not that I had anyone to speak to, but I was speechless when I put this some of these tracks on. Fleur de Lis track is awesome. You, you play it through a, a nice valve amp. The Wimple Winch track, you won't believe. It is absolutely sensational. I, and I swear I can hear stuff on there that I can't hear on the original single, particularly the, the, the twin uh, 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 lead guitar thing. It just sounds so 3D now. It really does sound good. The, the, the Abbey Road cuts on all of these singles are wonderful. They are really fantastic. So are these are these going going back to the master tapes and not just kind of almost rips and of of the the vinyl? Yeah, no, no, no. It's all all, all from tape. Yeah. It's wow. All, right, yeah.
treating me mad. You're making me sad. You're treating me bad. Oh. Soon the teardrops will stop and we'll be apart. Now, isn't that sad? to the second of the uh, Polydor pairing and we get the Longboatman and Take Her Anytime. Am I right that these are the only non-English groups, although did they come over here to record? Yeah, uh, they did and they had a bit of success, obviously, um, in Sweden. Um, They were known as Steam Packet 2 in Sweden, but when they came here, of course, there was already a Steam Packet, so they couldn't use that so they used the the long boatman you know the name of the um you know, the, the viking ships and everything so one just a, a great band quite interesting we couldn't find the tapes uh over here uh so we uh we did talk to one of the band uh, it might have been uh, michael i can't remember i think it might be it was michael but uh he he um is still something to do with the industry and um he on our behalf went to Universal in Stockholm, and uh, they dug out the tape. They found the tape, so we were we were able to use an original for that as well. We were worried at first that we may not find it, but we did, and that is another one where you, where you hear the the cut on this single. It's just uh, it shakes the rafters. Take her anytime. 
to the birds although at the time this single i think was released as birds birds and say those magic words was that because of the american birds well was there another backstory yeah there's a bit of a backstory the 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 birds ali uh who i know very well of the singer um says they they were never called birds birds ever in fact i have um they played uh they played saint albans where where i live in uh, January 1967, and I went to see them, and Ali gave me the contract for that gig one day, when, on my, one of my birthdays. He said, oh, you better have this. And uh, they were only ever called The Birds. They never, ever played anything but The Birds. But Robert Stigwood uh, had an idea, like a lot of people who, uh, who ran these different labels, you know, um, people like Guy Stevens, for instance, who, who was a lot to do with Ireland and everything, you know, Guy. Well, they would be scheming all the time. What can we call it? Change your name, guys. You know, we don't want you, you can't be called a VIP. No, let's call you art, you know. And they, these guys had, had, had good ideas of what to do. In, the, in their case, Robert Stigwood uh, said, um, 
let's call you birds birds you know it's mysterious and they even um changed their image uh, in the little booklet you get a picture of, i've got a few pictures of them a very few were taken while they were called uh, while this record came out but they adopted this um uh, kind of gangster image they all had the haircut a bit and they uh had double-breasted suits and and um machine guns but that didn't last in fact the group broke up soon after anyway but uh interesting enough they they recorded this track um from a publisher's acetate and they recorded their version long before or months before the uh, mccoys and so a band uh, an american band called the blocks also recorded it and none of, none of the bands heard the other band's versions and uh certainly it's one of those songs which could have been interpreted in different ways i think the publisher's demo sounded like it probably from what ali says it's probably just a guy with the piano you know so um what they did to it was what they did to a lot of the cover versions they did including leaving here which was to really um crank it up and um get something going whereas if you've heard the McCoy's version, you, you, you realize it's, it's actually just a pop song when they do it. But it's, it's a, a, an amazing single, again, sold in, in virtually single figures, I think. Certainly original copies are very few and far between. Also, they, they, I don't really think they got promoted that much. The band were playing live, but their live set was still, they were still doing the, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole kind of who thing going on, you know, so, I think this was almost a, 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 a stab at, at a, a sort of a new direction by Robert Stigwood, which kind of suited them in one way because they could virtually play anything. But it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful, wonderful track. So bright above Never thought that I could Be like this Like I'm living just for Your sweet kiss Well what you gonna say now What you gonna say now What you gonna say now Are you gonna say Those magic words Are you gonna say Those magic words Like I'm living 
track is obviously is also from the same label reaction and and a band i think also managed by robert stigwood what can you tell me more about the reaction label well the reaction label was set up by uh, robert stigwood and it was a vehicle really for putting the uh, the bands that he he had um was nurturing you know that that he was managing and everything so of course the the well-known bands on it of course are the who and um he took over the who from um I can't remember the date now, but it, you know there was a, there was a bit of animosity between um, Stigwood and uh, him putting out and uh, the original stuff was coming out on Brunswick, the uh, Shawtownby stuff. You know uh, there was a bit of a crossover, and also people remember the reaction because of um, the Cream as well. But of course, like a lot of these labels, you know, although it was a vehicle for those principally, um, other bands were put on it even just for one-offs. Not very many. I, I, I can't recall the entire discography without looking it up, but uh, there aren't that many records which aren't um, either Who or Creep, you know. Or, and, and The Sands, just one of those bands that um, they, they were put in to... Uh, I think they, they, they initially the idea was that they were going to record a... Um, well, they did record on, on the other side. They recorded a, a Bee Gees track. And, of course, the Bee Gees were Robert Stigwood's projects as well. So they were given... Uh, a single to uh, to record a Bee Gees track. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Oh, is it Mrs. Is it Mrs. Gillespie's refrigerator? Yeah, right, that's the that's the A side. <laughs> and then obviously, okay, guys, wonderful, you've recorded that. I'm going to get my lunch now. I'll leave you here with the you know Fred the engineer. Um, knock out a B side, which they did with one of their own, which was Listen to the Sky, and uh, of course. I am a sucker for sound effects. Mm. They really went to town. It's just a fantastic, fantastic. Uh, con- uh, it's a concoction. It's almost like a collage. It's uh, a typical. It's a great B side. You know, you, they have obviously had a lot of fun doing it. And um, whatever we don't really, we know that a couple of them became Sun Dragon. And that's strangely enough, Sun Dragon uh, singles are quite easy to find. They they seem to have pressed a lot you know the ones on mgm you can uh, often come up you know, can find them there's also an album but they're, they're nothing like the sands they're uh, a bit more lightweight but this this b-side is just one of those great b-sides you know flip the record play the other side and um you know your ears will drop off yeah i mean uh, really really great single in terms of this kind of a shift from it kind of almost starts a bit sort of harmony like and then kind of uh, as kind of the Seems like they they 
they wanted in the the back half of the song to really reflect the the tone of the lyrics, which are more sort of that militaristic, darker tone. Yeah, it's true. They they must have. It sounds like they had a lot of fun. It's, it sounds like it was more or less put together in the studio. You know, you can imagine them going through it, and then then maybe the uh, the guy was engineering it or, or or with them saying, "Why why don't we put some you know some airplane noise or, or uh, better still, let's have a siren." You know, and you can see it all coming together. You know, and getting a bit worse. It's almost like Mark Wirtz did it. You know, you can it's, it's someone like that with the having some fun. Maybe maybe it was getting late at night and uh, everyone else had gone home. They said, "Yeah." Let's uh, let's lock the doors and get to do something fantastic. Buddy Baker was an ordinary guy, so when he got the letter, he was horrified, but he said goodbye. He filled all the forms and the papers he could see, but when he got his uniform, he wished he could be with his family.
now we get to the final pair of uh, tracks. Um, and, uh, are they, are, were these Mercury Stroke Phillips songs? And I know the, the the first track that we're talking about here is The Eyes and When the Night Falls, which is, um, you know, the guitar on that is just superb. Yeah, The Eyes, again, one of those bands where we, when I first went into uh, a polygram to license the, the, the rubble tracks, um, we went through this this filing cabinet and I found lots of letters from the eyes. And interesting enough, the, um, I suppose because this was about when it, was, it would have been about 83. So we're only talking about maybe 16 years after these records have came out, you know, so a lot of the people were uh, living with their mum and dad, like these were, and their mums and dads were still at the same address. So we wrote to the addresses we found in this um, in this filing cabinet, and sure enough, all of them got in touch. I think Terry got in touch, Barry got in touch, Phil Heatley got in touch. I think Barry it was Barry who sent me a bunch of acetates. He said, "He said I've got some other ones here, Phil. You might be interested in." And about three days later, the post arrived. There was a thump as this envelope hit the floor inside the house, and he'd put all these acetates in a in an envelope. No packing, no cardboard, and they—I th- couldn't believe that they'd arrived in one piece. And he obviously had no idea that they might be worth something. But uh, I think we put them out. We did put them out on Van Crusoe. We did a, a twelve-inch with them with the estates on. But they were—they were, they were a, a, a mod band. They—they—they'd you know, heard the Who. They—they they loved Townsend. They loved the feedback, the um, things you could do with with the guitar when you turned it up too high and, and stood too close to the amp. And they put out the, these records that were, well, they they were before their time. They really were before their time. Was this sixty five? It was. It's really early. Yeah, I mean, we're talking. Who else was doing this? The Yardbirds were getting into it a little bit, but then they had, you know, Jeff Beck uh, the controls. They uh, the Who, of course, were doing lovely things. Yeah, they were. They were one of. They they had a sort of. Um, they were pretty short lived. They, they didn't. They they tried to get some hits later on. They did um, "Good Day Sunshine," didn't they? And and a few other things. Uh, and we also found the uh, the contract that they were uh, presented with to, um, and it really was just a job. And that was to record an an album of uh, of Stones covers for the budget Wing label. And we found the contract, and it was they got paid 180 quid for doing that. Uh, and it came out under the, the pseudonym The Pupils, which I thought was a lovely, it's quite clever, really. And they were sort of pupils of playing the stones, you know, and, um, and the eyes and the pupils. But uh, if, if people have never heard that album, it's worth, you used to be able to pick it up in virtually every secondhand shop for 50p, I remember. Um, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's not rubbish. It's, uh, it's definitely the eyes, and they do go out on a limb on some of the tracks and, and, and uh, you know, f- freak it out a little bit. Worth checking it out. Do they do a version of Play With Fire? I think they do. I, without running over to my, um, my, my, my shelves and, and hunting for it, I can't remember the exact tragedy. But um, there, there are two albums I would, I would recommend people check out if they ever get a chance. Uh, one is uh, that one, because it really is worth picking up, especially if you get it for next to nothing. And another one, and what's it called? It's called something like Melting Pot and Other Hits. And it came out uh, it's on a cheap label. And basically you get Blue Mink doing Melting Pot, but all the other tracks are played by Smoke. 
Ah. And they do things like Spirit in the Sky. It's all cover versions. It's like a cash-in. It just looks like a, a cover version album, you know. Melting Pots and other hits, I think it's called. Uh, but Melting Pot is actually by Blooming. All the other tracks, I think most of them are played by Smoke. They do Spirit in the Sky, and it sounds like My Friend Jack. It's really worth picking up if you ever see one. Now the word is out, people will um, will, will, will soak up every uh, available copy of that. <laughs> now that's that's a band that, that we'll have to talk about another time with um, you know lots of stories and lots of material to uncover. But Worth it, definitely <laughs> worth it. Hopefully next time. So now, Phil, we get to our final track, and you know it's quite late in the era. The guitar and the whole, the way that the whole band uh, play on this is just sensational. It's the open mind and magic potion. Yeah, I think really it, you can say it's a bit more accomplished than than, than other. You know, that the years sixty six, sixty seven, sixty eight, sixty nine. You can you can tell by listening to records how technology was advancing at quite a fast pace. I mean, we virtually went from four track to 16 track in those days, you know, four track to eight track, but at the end of 67, 69, I think there were, it's the first 16 track. So you were getting a lot more sound in, you get a lot more going on. And um, consequently, some of the recordings from that later era sound a bit 
too good <laughs> to be um, gritty psychedelic uh, gems. You know, they they have a sort of a they're a bit too polished. This one sneaks in though, I think, because it's um, it's so well put together. It, great songs. Um, obviously, people will know their album. It, it, it's been um, it's been reissued inverted commas and um i think it's been out on cd and everything but the single that, that they uh, issued uh i think it came out before the album about a month before was not on the album and if anything it's slightly better than the album it's a bit rawer uh both sides are fantastic i used to have uh, in my possession i can't i haven't find it lately but somewhere in the house it must be i've got a phillips dealer book from that year and this was the book that people used to have in the shop so if you wanted to order a record they would flick through and order it for you and it, it had everything and as records were deleted they um the record companies would send out sheets of sticky paper with the word deleted and they would announce which records had been deleted so that the people in the shop could tear that bit off lick the back and stick it over the entry in the book and I have in this book, it lists the open mind as being deleted sometime, from my memory serves me, in October or November. And it was only released in September. So that shows you how, I'm oh, sorry, it was deleted in September. That's right. And uh, I think it came out a few months before. So it just goes to show how short a life these, these um, albums had at the time. Obviously, it wasn't selling, so they deleted it, and uh, which, which will explain why it is so impossibly rare. Let's play Magic Potion by The Open Mind uh, to close. And um, just to reiterate, this is um, you know such a wonderful seven seven inches um, with uh, fantastic packaging and some really lovely period labels and and. You know, it was great to hear, Phil, that you, you've gone back to the master tapes on this one, which which means this, this it, it really does add something and, and, and makes this really an essential essential purchase. I think even if you've even if you've got all the original singles, and there won't be many people who can uh, oh, hold their hands up and say I've got all these, <laughs> it's it's just great to hear them in this new in this new cut. We've not remixed them, we've not played with them at all. We've literally got everything that was on the tape. And it's literally that the idea that you can now do that. You can now um, uh, really kind of uh, get all the frequencies out, you know, with the, with what they can do nowadays. And um, they've, they've managed it. And uh, I, I was so pleased when I was sent the test pressings. I really was in heaven, <laughs> putting one one after the other, thinking, "Wow, what's going to happen next?" You know, it's it it really sounds like you've had a. You know, your your ears have suddenly been syringed, and you can hear things as they really were. And if you if you turn up loud, you you've got wimple winch in your front room. Well, let's hope there's more sets and uh, do keep in touch, Phil. I I, I I do think this is just the best era in in music history, the most inventive, the most exciting, and um, you know there's endless possibilities. And, and hopefully, we can keep discovering new music from this era because it just it, it doesn't fail to surprise and, and, and please the ear. Yeah, never a dull moment. Excellent, Jason. I really, really enjoyed it.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or go to thestrangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much, and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.